All right, all right. That's enough friendliness. Uh, Good morning, church. I'm going to invite you to come back to your seats and, uh, and have a seat. Yeah, nice to see you. My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you're, uh, if you're a guest or if you're new with us, welcome to you. And uh, if you're watching online, welcome to you. You should come. We got seats right down here in the front row. If you're watching this from home, we have a space for you. You just have to be willing to sit right up here. So just be ready for that. Um, but we're excited that you're here. We're going to continue our study in, uh, in the book of John this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 1. We'll be studying the text uh, that we looked at together just a moment ago. And I'll, I'll also make this mention... Um, if you did not get a copy of the Gospel of John journals that we handed out over the last couple of weeks, uh, last week we had run out of those. We ordered another thousand copies. Those came in this week. So if you didn't get your copy yet, uh, then you can grab one of those from the ushers in the lobby afterwards. But we want to make sure everybody who considers this their church home grabs that because we do sincerely want to be studying that together and reflecting upon it together. We want you all to have one. So make sure you get one of those if you don't have one already. As we begin this morning, I would love it if you would join me uh, as we pray together. So will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the privilege to use our minds and our hearts, our voices, our hands uh, to worship you. And we've come here to worship you, not just through our greeting of one another, not just through the singing of your praise, not just through the celebration of communion and remembrance of you. We've come here to worship you through the study of your word. And we pray, God, that you would be glorified in our time. We pray that your spirit would speak uh, that, that my voice and my notes and my preparations would fade into the distance and that your voice would be heard in this place, that you would move in each heart in a way that I cannot, that you would touch each and every one of us, that you would challenge us, that you would inspire us, that you would convict us, and that you would call us further down this path of discipleship that you've got us on, no matter who we are or where we find ourselves, that you would invite us to come deeper with you. We think this morning about the terrible uh, things that happened this week in our country, God, the, the, the violence and the hatred, uh, the, the bombs and the killing, and the, there, there is so much that is dark and broken and ugly in our world, God, we cry out today for your hand of healing, for your power to be brought to bear both in our country and in our city and in our world, that you would bring your peace and your light and your love, God, would you shine into the lives of those who are mourning and grieving and spinning this morning from the terrible things that have occurred. God, we are so, we are so aware of how desperate we are for you. And so we pray that you would move in a powerful way, that you would show yourself strong, that you would comfort the brokenhearted, that you would wrap your arms around those who are grieving that you would turn the hearts of those that are filled with hate and that you would draw us all to yourself, that you would allow us to see your face and be transformed by that, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in John chapter one, we're moving now into verse 19. We spent the first 18 verses looking at what is essentially a prologue, uh, incredibly theological, incredibly deep. In fact, some of the best uh, theology in all of the Bible with regard to who Jesus is, we see in the first 18 verses of John chapter one. Now, as we get to John 1, 19, we're transitioning into what is truly the, the narrative portion of the book. And he'll, John, the writer, will sort of come in and out of that narrative. He'll give us little asides. But primarily now, we're into narrative 
7, he begins this narrative portion uh, in talking about John the Baptist. Now, he's already set that up a little bit in those first 18 verses. He's already said John the Baptist came. He was not the light, but he was a witness to the light that he declared some truths about who God is. Now, he's going to give us the specifics of what he meant by those sort of generalities earlier. And when he begins with John the Baptist here in the narrative portion in John 1.19, he does that for a couple of reasons. He's aligning himself uh, with, the, uh, with the rest of the Gospels. So the Synoptic Gospels all tell the story of John the Baptist in one way or another. So we see some alignment and solidarity with the other Gospels. We also understand as we look at the book of Acts that in the early church, their Gospel message always began with John the Baptist. They never jumped straight to, hey, do you want to know for sure you're not going to go to hell or something, as people can sometimes do now. They began the narrative with the story of John the Baptist. We see it in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples are talking about who will replace Judas. Their recollection of the narrative of Jesus begins with John the Baptist. We see it in in Peter's gospel message in Acts chapter 10. He begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. We see it in the Apostle Paul's ministry uh, as he's sharing the gospel in Acts chapter 13. He begins with John the Baptist. So when John, the apostle, is writing his gospel, for him to begin with John the Baptist is not only showing solidarity with the other gospel writers, it's also in alignment with the way the gospel was presented in the early church. And and we should sort of take note of that, that that is the historic way in which they told the story of Jesus. They began with this ambassador who came before him. John the Baptist is described for us in greater detail in some of the other books, and we may look at that a little later. But understand that John the Baptist was a... um He was certainly a very intriguing figure, right? He was a guy we understand from the other Gospels who was a a little uh, interesting in the way he dressed. It says he dressed in camel hair. He was out in the wilderness. He ate locusts, which is disgusting. I had crickets one time at a Mexican food place in Cerritos. I'm not super into that, right? Uh, They were, the only thing that was good about the crickets is they were a little bit spicy. It doesn't matter. Um, But uh, he, he ate weird stuff and he was calling people to a kind of ministry that they hadn't seen before. He was calling them to something that was uh, in stark contrast with the religious system of the day. And we're going to talk about that more as we get into it. But as a result of his ministry, and Luke and Mark will both explain to us that there were Jews coming to John the Baptist and his ministry in great numbers because of the fact that he'd kind of created a ripple and there was some kind of interesting word on the street about him. We see in John 1.19 that the Jews send a group of emissaries to John the Baptist to ask him some questions about who he is. There are three, essentially three questions we see in the text this morning, and I need you to hear them because they're not only important questions that were asked of John the Baptist, they are absolutely essential questions for you and I to ask ourselves. These emissaries, priests and Levites, they came to, uh, they came to John the Baptist and they said these three things. They asked him, who are you? They asked him, what do you say about yourself? And they asked him, why are you doing what you're doing? Those are pretty good questions, right? We could stop right there and say these are questions that are important for us to evaluate as well. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And why are you doing what you're doing? They ask John the Baptist all three of these things, and his answers are profound. They're profound in their simplicity, they're profound in their humility, and mostly they're profound in their articulation. I think John the Baptist gets kind of a bad rap for being like a crazy person, right? You think of John the Baptist sometimes, and you picture somebody with sort of wild hair and a wild beard, and he's got, probably because he has locust legs in his beard or whatever, you're like, okay, gross. But he has a, he has a more fully formed and articulated, you know, philosophy of ministry than many other people in the scripture. 
I love John the Baptist's approach, and I think it, it behooves us this morning to pay close attention to his answers to these questions because they will absolutely inform our answers to the questions. These emissaries come out to John the Baptist that says this in John 119. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are you? You know, they say, uh, they say you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? I messed that up in the first service. I messed up that quote. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. First impressions are important. Uh, and and we, we work really hard to make sure we introduce ourselves in ways that are important. I, uh, I had the opportunity one time to go and, uh, and teach. I teach at a lot of camps. Should we all just wait and watch these people come in? I can tell. <laughs> I can tell that you are infinitely more interested in this group of people than you are in what I'm saying. Good morning, welcome, welcome. We're glad you guys are here. Um, would any of you like to come and teach this message? I've got notes right here. Just, so, just No, it's fine. It's like I'm talking to everybody's, you're just watching. Okay, I get it, it's fine. It's fine, they're almost, we're good. Oh look, that's one of our junior high leaders. I was, uh, I was trying to shame him, so you guys didn't pick up on what I was putting out. It's fine. Fine. We'll work on that together later. Uh, I was trying to tell you a story about first impressions. I, uh, I, I get invited to a lot of camps and stuff, whatever, and they always want a bio, which is really weird. It's really weird to write like a paragraph about who you are and what you've done. Like, I don't, I don't really understand how people do that because it ends up being like, well, Darren did this and Darren did that and he worked over here and it's always, it always feels really awkward because none of that stuff, well, first of all, none of that stuff in my life is super impressive, but number two, it just feels weird to say it about yourself. So I had this idea a few years ago. I thought, you know what I'm gonna do is rather than writing a bio about myself, I'm gonna grab a different paragraph and I'm just gonna drop my name into it and just send that, you know, like that, that work. And so I grabbed the, uh, the opening narration from the, uh, the best television show of the 80s. Some of you may remember it called The A-Team. You remember that show? Um, At the beginning of the A-Team, this is a true story, at the beginning of the A-Team they say this, in 1972 a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles Underground. My wife and I were talking about this week where the Los Angeles Underground is. That's right here folks, that's Fullerton, right? Uh, These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles Underground today, still wanted by the government. They survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-team, right? And then it was like, dun, dun, and there was like machine guns, you know, it was like really cool intro to an excellent show, right? So I just took that paragraph and basically, you know, like ripped it off for myself, and I sent this off to the camp. So my bio, uh, there, there was a nice picture of me, and then the bio read, uh, in 1972, Darren McWaters was sent to prison by a military court uh, for a crime he didn't commit. He promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, he survives as a preacher of fortune. Uh, If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find him, maybe you can hear Darren McWaters. I sent that to them. Um, And apparently this particular camp didn't have a fact checker. I don't know, they didn't have anybody that... They didn't have anybody who checked it. They just dropped it straight into their brochure. They put it on their website. And then I'm getting, uh, I start getting phone calls from the camp director. And he's like, man, I don't even know if we're going to be able to have you preach at this camp because parents are furious. They're so angry. And I'm like, why? That was really funny. He goes, parents do not want to send their kids to a camp where an escaped convict is preaching. (laughs) Right? That is not the way to pitch yourself. 
First impressions make a difference, and that was a poor one. I learned from that, by the way. I learned my lesson, right? These emissaries from the Jews, they come to John the Baptist and they say, who are you? And that's a really important question, who are you? And they have a couple of specific ideas. They ask him who he is, and it says here in John 1.19, uh, they say, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. First and foremost on their minds is, are you the Messiah? That word Christ that's used here in John 1.19 is the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. It means anointed one. They're looking at John the Baptist and his ministry. He's got all these people coming to him. And the first question they ask is, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he declares in no uncertain terms, that's the way John, why John's written it the way he has, that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Like that is meant to be emphatic. He said, no, I ain't him. I'm not the Christ. There are all kinds of other people who might falsely lay claim to that. And in fact, there is one, I will declare to you, who truly is the Messiah, but he ain't me. So his first answer is in the negative. They say, are you the Christ? He says, no. So they cross that one off their list and they work their way down. Back to John chapter one. Verse 21, they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? Well, now to many of you in the room, that might seem like a weird question, right? Here's, here's a guy who's uh, living in the, in the day and age in which they're living. Elijah has been gone a long time at this point. So it might feel weird to you that they would look at him and say, are you Elijah? But for the Jews living at the time, they were anticipating the return of the prophet Elijah because of a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. So in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and really all of chapter 4 kind of talks about the great day of the Lord, but in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So the Jewish people were not only waiting for the Messiah, they were waiting for the return of Elijah, the prophet Elijah, a hero to them, who they saw as being sort of a forerunner to the return of Christ, right? Or to the, to, not to the return of Christ, but to the coming of the Messiah. And so they look at him and they say, are you Elijah? And he says, again, in no uncertain terms, no, I'm not. He said that twice now. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. They cross that one off the list and they work their way down again. They say then, back to John chapter 1, in verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Then they say, are you the prophet? You might look at that and go, well, the, the, is he a prophet? Well, yeah, I mean, in some ways, John the Baptist is a prophet, right? But notice here in your Bibles, if you have the translation with you, notice that the word prophet there is capitalized. That's a, that's a very specific name. They're talking about a very specific perfect person. They're not just talking about prophets broadly. They're talking about a very specific character. So they look at him and they say, you're not Elijah, you're not the Messiah, are you the prophet? And what they're referring to is a, is a prophecy that was made by Mo Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. Moses had said to the people, God is going to raise up another prophet like me. So they look, at, they look at John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and they say, are you the Christ? He says, no. They say, are you Elijah? We're waiting for Elijah. He says, no. They say, well, are you the prophet that Moses said would come? And he says, no. 
Now, interestingly, he says no to all three of those. Interestingly, in Matthew 11, Jesus will actually say, Elijah is the, or excuse me, John the Baptist is the Elijah character that was prophesied. So John the Baptist doesn't necessarily see it in himself, but Jesus identifies it. But we understand that this isn't Elijah reincarnated. Reincarnation is not a biblical idea. What we understand from Luke chapter 1, when the angel declares to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, hey, you're going to have a son, he says, your son will come in the spirit of John the Baptist. That's Luke chapter 1, right? Your son will come in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus looks at John the Baptist and says, if you can receive it, he's the Elijah that was talked about. But John the Baptist himself doesn't recognize that in himself, even though it was prophesied to his father. They come to him and say, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He says, no, no, no. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that in order to understand who you are, you have to first understand who you aren't. It might feel a little bit weird to you that John's first three answers to them are no, 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 that it kind of all feels pretty negative, that he's not giving them a lot of information, but here's what I want you to see. John the Baptist understood very clearly who he wasn't, and I think sometimes we get a little bit gummed up in that, right? I think sometimes in our lives we sort of get an overinflated view of ourselves. I think sometimes we start to see ourselves maybe as more important than we are. It would have been very easy for John the Baptist to say, well, I might not be Elijah or I might not be the prophet, but let me tell you who I am. I got about a thousand people in this line coming out here to be baptized by me. I don't know if you noticed that. It's kind of a big deal. I'm the best at eating crickets, right? But he didn't pump himself up. What's he doing? He's trying to turn them away from looking at him. So his response is, yeah, they're all kind of in the negative, but it's because he has a clear understanding of who he isn't and he wants other people to understand who he isn't as well. I don't know that all the time we think about making sure that other people know who we aren't. But it is very easy for people to want to sort of put their attention on us, to want to put their attention or their trust in us, to want to count on us. But we're broken just like everybody else. You and me, we're human beings. We're sinners. We're broken. We don't want to be drawing people to ourselves. We don't want to be drawing people to our ministry. We don't want to be drawing people to our thoughts or our theology or our ideas. Why? Because we're flawed and broken. We constantly want to be reminding people who we aren't. We aren't the word. We aren't the light. We might be a witness to the light. We might be a lamp for the light. But we aren't the light itself. They say, are you, are you, are you? He says, no, I'm not. And I want you to see here in his testimony, this is his testimony That his denial, his denials are part of his positive witness. It might seem like he's just being negative. It might seem like he's just being deflective in some ways. But his denials of their questions are part of his positive witness here, right? They say, are you, are you, are you? He says, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Well, what is it? He leaves them with none. They've crossed everything off their list, right? So now we have these emissaries. They were sent, uh, you know, priests and Levites sent by the Jews to come and ask these questions. They've asked their questions and the answers have been no, no, no. And so what are they supposed to do? Look at what happens next. Back to John chapter one. They look at him in, uh, in verse 22. They said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us What do you say about yourself? They essentially go, look, we can't go back to the people that sent us and go, hey, you guys wanted to know if he was Elijah. You wanted to know if he was the Christ. You wanted to know if he was the prophet. Nope, Uh, nope, and nope. Thanks very much for sending us. It was a great trip. Here are our receipts. Can we be reimbursed? That'd be excellent, right? They go, we have to go back and tell them something. So then the second question comes up. If you're not any of these things, we understand who you aren't. What do you say about yourself? 
We have to tell them something. What do you say about yourself? Now, this question, what do you say about yourself, is a really interesting one, and it's one that's incredibly common in our culture, right? I don't know if you've thought about this or if you realize it immediately, but I want you to kind of wake up to the idea that, that our world is asking you this question all the time. Almost moment by moment, this question is saying, what do you say about yourself? It's asking you that through Instagram. It's asking you that through Twitter. It's asking you that through Facebook. It's asking you that through all forms of social media. Our culture is constantly going, hey, say something about yourself. Tell, post a picture about yourself. Tell us something about how great you are. Tell us something about how awesome the, the thing you made is. Or tell us something about how great your parenting skills are. Or tell us, you know, whatever. We're constantly being asked the question to declare something about ourselves. In fact, when you sign up for Instagram or for Twitter or for Facebook, one of the very first questions it asks you to do is to describe yourself. So the, the question for us this morning, along with John the Baptist, is what do you say about yourself? How do you answer the question? Our world is asking us the question moment by moment by moment, and I think most of the time the answers we give are answers that would be more along the lines of if John the Baptist had said, oh, you, you want to know what I say about myself? Well, let me tell you a couple things about me. Can I tell you that I am the, a son born to a man and a woman in their old age, the woman who was barren? She wasn't supposed to have any kids. I'm a miraculous child. I'm the product of the revelation of God. In fact, an angel came to my dad and told him I was going to be born. That's kind of cool. I'm going to put that in my Instagram profile, right? Right? Or my dad, Zachariah, was a priest in the, in the temple, right? I'm from a priestly family. I'm a Levitical person myself. In fact, while I'm not operating as a priest, I will tell you that I was raised under Nazarite purification vows, and I've lived faithful to those my entire life. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man who's living very purely for the glory of God. That's what I say about myself. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say I'm a miraculous child. He doesn't say, you know what, you might not know this, I was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time before I was born. That would be a pretty cool declaration, right? There are all kinds of things that John the Baptist could declare about himself that would be awesome, right? They would look awesome on an Instagram page or in a Facebook profile. He could have declared all kinds of things that set himself apart from other people as being better and greater and more grandiose and more special. And I think that's how we tend to want to answer the question. People go, what do you say about yourself? And we're scrambling to try and think of something spectacular. But that is not what John the Baptist does. And in fact, let's look at his response. In verse 22, they say to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Here's his answer, verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. There's a couple of things about this answer that are brilliant. The first thing I want you to see about his response when they say, what do you say about yourself, is that he doesn't even use his own words. In response to the question, what do you say about yourself, he quotes the scriptures he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He uses Isaiah's words to describe himself rather than his own. He says, what do I say about myself? I don't have an answer to that, but I can tell you what the prophet Isaiah said about me. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, uh, another sort of messianic prophecy here. Isaiah 43, it says, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And the, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, right? So he says, look, you want to know who, what do I say about myself? I'm just the voice. Notice he doesn't say a voice. 
He says, the voice. He's again specifically referring to a specific voice that was prophesied in Isaiah 40. I am just the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the pathway for the Lord. Now, originally, this prophecy was about the the, the return of people in captivity to the promised land. They had been in Babylon, and they were going to return to the promised land, and so it was a a voice crying out, hey, we got to clear a path so that they're set free from their enslavement, and they're brought back to the place where they are free. Now John the Baptist says, yeah, that was about the return of the exiles from Babylon, but more than that, let me tell you this, it's about me proclaiming in the wilderness of today that we have to make a straight path to enter into the freedom that only the Messiah can bring, right? What do I say about myself? Well, let me give you a quote from the Bible. I'm just the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the pathways of the Lord. I'm just the voice. I love the fact that he refers to himself as the voice. We've already seen in John 1 that Jesus was the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh. Remember that, John 1, 14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Baptist doesn't say, I'm the word. He says, what? I'm a voice. What does a voice do? A voice carries the word communicates the word. Very similar to what we talked about uh, last week where we said John wasn't the light, but Jesus refers to him in John 5 as a burning lamp. That he's a shining lamp. What does a lamp do? A lamp carries the light. What does a voice do? It carries the word. John, John the Baptist says, what do I say about myself? I'm just the voice that carries the word into the wilderness. The wilderness in this text and originally in Isaiah 40 was representative of, of a place of barrenness. In John the Baptist's time, the barrenness has to do with the religious system. It has to do with a bunch of priests and Levites and Pharisees who who had gotten so far from God's plan and God's purposes for them that they can't even see Jesus standing in their midst. We'll talk about that in a minute. But John says, I'm just a voice crying out. I've dedicated my life to calling other people to remove the obstacles that would prevent you from coming to the Lord. Let me ask you this this morning, church. could Could you answer the question... What do you say about yourself only using scripture? Would that be tough for you? It would be tough for me, or it would have been, except that I studied all week. I knew I was gonna ask the question, so I have the answers, right? (laughs) Because we're just not used to answering it that way, but, but can I ask you, just think about it for a second. How profoundly would our world change? How profoundly would our church and our city and our neighborhoods change if when you and I were asked by our world or asked by our friends or asked by our coworkers, hey, what do you say about yourself? What if we answered that question in terms of what God had said about us rather than what we say about ourselves? I, uh, I took the time to sort of make a list of just a few. This isn't even exhaustive, but just a few of these. What if we answered the question, what do you say about yourself like this? What if we said, I- I'm a prayerful and faithful citizen in the city God has planted me? That's out of Jeremiah chapter 29. What if we said, I'm the defender of others? Out of Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. What if somebody said, what do you say about yourself? And we said, I'm a helper and a reconciler as it says in Galatians chapter six, verse one. Or I'm a disciple maker, like Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything which I've commanded you. What if my answer is, what do I say about myself? I'm a disciple maker, not because I thought that up, but because Jesus appointed me. What if my answer to the question, what do you say about yourself, is I'm an ambassador from 2 Corinthians 5.20, or I'm a worshiper and a neighbor from Luke 10.27, or I've been chosen of God and I'm holy and loved from Colossians 3. 
What if my answer is I'm a citizen of heaven from Philippians 3? Or I'm a member of Christ's body and a partaker of his promise from Ephesians 3? What if I were to respond to the question, what do you say about yourself by saying I am God's workmanship, his poetry, created to produce good works according to Ephesians 2? What if my answer to the question, what do you say about yourself, is my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within me from 1 Corinthians 6? Or as a child of God, I'm a fellow heir with Christ out of Romans 8. What if I just said, I'm a friend of the Lord Jesus out of John 15, a friend of Jesus? What do you say about yourself? I'm a branch of the true vine and a conduit of Christ's life for others out of John 15, 5. Or maybe simply out of John 1, which we looked at last week in verse 12, I'm a child of God. I don't know that we tend to answer the question, what do you say about yourself, based on what God has already said. Why? Because most of the time, we want to define ourselves, right? We want to be the one who decides who we are. Oh, I'm an incredible architect, or oh, I'm an incredible teacher, I'm a great father, I'm a great this, or I'm a great that. We, we want to sort of pump up our own ego, we want to pump up our own business cards. So we don't necessarily want to go, well, I'm an ambassador, or I'm a child of God, because in our crazy way of thinking, those things seem somehow less than being a, a, you know, just like a great vacation taker or whatever, right? Sometimes we're defined by ourselves. Sometimes, and probably more often, we're defined by our culture. We're defined by the, the voices of other people. And sometimes those definitions are more along the lines of ugly or stupid or out of shape or unnecessary or unwanted. So some of us, if we were to be asked the question, what do you say about yourself? We'd go, well, I'm not that great. Kind of dumb. I don't get very good grades. I haven't really done much with my life. My, my, my brother's more successful than me. Whatever. And we're allowing ourselves to be defined by the culture or our circumstances. Sometimes we're defined by what we do. Sometimes we're defined by how we feel. Sometimes we're defined by the broken voices of other people speaking into our lives. Listen, none of those things should have the power to define you any more than you should be able to define yourself. The one who gets to define a thing is the one who made the thing. And so the right answer when somebody says, what do you say about yourself, is for us to figure that out based on what God has already said. How amazing would our lives be if we answered the question in terms of, well, let me tell you what God says about me instead of what I say about myself. They come to John the Baptist and they say, we can't go back with no, no, no. We have to have an answer. So what do you say about yourself? He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm just trying to clear a path and point people to the Lord, to the Messiah. It says in 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They, They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, right? If you're not one of those three, then what are you doing out here? They're very concerned about what he's doing because they're religious leaders. Again, priests and Levites, there's a very set system for the way religious practices happen and they're in control of that system. They're the ones who manage it. They're the ones who regulate it. They're in control of it. They get to tell people where to go and when to go there, right? And so they're troubled by the fact that there's this guy outside of town who's baptizing a bunch of people. Now listen, baptism was familiar to the Jewish people. Baptism was something that happened in their culture, but it was, uh, there, there are two things that are different about the baptism they were used to and the baptism that John's doing. The first one is that baptism in, in Judaism was self-administered. So it was the thing you did for yourself, right? That's not what John's doing. John is baptizing, right? He's showing somebody else needs to do this for you. He's setting up the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Not only that, baptism in, in Judaism was for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. The problem with what John the Baptist is doing out in the wilderness is that he's baptizing Jews. And he's not just baptizing Jews, he's baptizing a lot of Jews, right? And so the Jewish leaders are kind of frustrated, like, why are you, what, what is the point of this baptism? Why are you doing it, and under whose authority? Because we didn't tell you to do this. Now, if you were Elijah, or if you were a prophet like Moses, or if you were the Christ, you can kind of do whatever you want to do, right? We'll follow your lead. But you just said you're none of those things. You said you're just a voice in the wilderness. So by whose authority, and what right do you have to be baptizing Jewish people towards repentance, we understand something of John's message and why it would have sort of inflamed the priests and the Levites. Look at Luke 3. In Luke chapter 3, verse 3, we get a, sort of a longer description, and it says this. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. He said that to the people that are coming out to be baptized, right? It's a great way to start. Talk about introductions. You brood of vipers, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, right? <laughs> okay. That doesn't really feel like it fits, does it? He's saying, you brood of vipers, who told you to come out here? Don't you know that God's judgment is coming? That he's gonna judge those who have all this religious stuff in place, but they're not willing to share of what they have? They're only concerned about serving themselves? They're only concerned about putting more money in their pockets? Men of violence, men of hatred, men of greed? Turn from those ways. Because the, 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 the master is coming with the winnowing fork and he is clearing the threshing floor and the chaff that is left will be burned with unquenchable fire. That was the good news of John the Baptist. Not what we think about as good news, but it is. It is good news, why? Because he's saying to them, repentance is possible. Salvation is possible. The Messiah is coming. Clear the way. Repent from your sin. Now this was markedly different than the, the teaching of the Jewish leaders. The priests and the Levites were all about religious activity, right? It was all about conformity to religious ritual. And it's drastically different than a guy out in the wilderness going, you need to turn from your sin and be selfless and be kind and be uh, content with what you have and be anxious and expectant for the coming of the Messiah. 
And so they were troubled. They look at him and they say, by what authority do you do this? Why are you doing what you're doing? And I love John the Baptist's answer. Go back to John chapter one. In John chapter one, they say to him, uh, why are you doing this if you're not Christ or Elijah? The prophet, verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That seems like a weird answer, doesn't it? They say, well, why are you doing this? And his answer is, I baptize with water, but there's somebody else coming, someone who is so worthy and so glorious that I can't even untie a sandal. There was a, there was a common sort of colloquial saying among, among the rabbis where they would say, a disciple, a follower of a rabbi, should do everything for the rabbi that a slave would do except untie the strap of the sandal. That's too low, right? A disciple doesn't have to do that. That's only for slaves. Only slaves will untie sandal straps. What John the Baptist says is, there is one standing among us whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Think about that. What's he saying? He's saying to them, you're looking at me. He's looking at the priests and the Levites and he's saying, you're looking at me and you're asking me why I'm doing what I'm doing. But he says, look, look guys, the deal is I'm just dunking people in the water, right? I'm just dunking people in the water here for repentance of sins and you're so preoccupied with my dunking people in the water that you have missed the fact that the Christ is standing here. Now we don't know whether Jesus was actually in that crowd or whether he was pointing to the fact that Jesus would soon be there. But either way, he says, you're so preoccupied with your religious activity. You're so preoccupied with maintaining your control. So preoccupied with justifying your own self-righteousness that you've missed the fact that the Messiah is actually here. There is one standing among us who is so worthy that I'm not even fit to untie his sandal. I can't even do the work of a slave for him. I love the fact, by the way, that Jesus will come back and wash the feet of his disciples, right? You know, the greatest hindrance to us seeing the Lord Jesus for many of us is trying to maintain the image of our spiritual perfection, right? That we're working so hard to go, hey, why are you doing this and why are you doing that? And let's make sure that what I'm doing is satisfactory that we, we miss the presence of Jesus among us. And so John the Baptist looks at him and said, why are you preoccupied with my baptism? I'm just putting people in the water, but the Messiah's here. Don't miss him. Why? Because John was dedicated to the light. He was dedicated to the word. He was a lamp and a voice. He says, don't get so preoccupied with maintaining your own status quo that you miss the truth. That is a huge danger for each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus, that we get so wrapped up in our own sort of uh, recitation of the facts or in our own sort of execution of what we perceive to be Christian duties or activities that we stop actually looking at Jesus. John says, I'm just dunking people in the water. Why are you looking at me? For goodness sakes, why are you looking at me? And so we come to the end of the text for today. And we have to, we have to ask ourselves the same questions. Who are you? Who are you today? And in order to answer the question, you also kind of have to understand who you aren't. That you aren't the Lord Jesus but that he is available to you, that he came and died for you, that yes, there is a judgment coming for those who who are in unrepentant sin, who have not turned to Christ, but that is good news because there is freedom from sin and death for all who would turn to Jesus. Don't get so busy looking at me or at the trappings of religion or, or at the religiosity of others that you miss the Lord Jesus, right? We're just dunking people with water over here. Look to Christ. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? You spend your time sort of puffing yourself up, 
putting on your best face? Or can you define yourself in the terms in which God and his word defines you? John says, I'm just a voice. And then, and then the last question, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? What's your answer to that? Well, we're all doing different things, right? Why? What are you doing them for? Are you doing them to put money in your bank account? Are you doing them to increase your followers on Instagram? Are you doing them so you can lay your head on the pillow at night feeling like you're a decent member of society? Or are you doing what you're doing to deflect people away from yourself and onto the Lord Jesus, who is the only one that can save them? You know, it's interesting. We live in a wilderness today, just like they lived in then, right? We live in a spiritual wilderness, in a barren place. When's the last time that anybody sent an emissary to you to ask you who you are and what you say about yourself and why you're doing what you're doing? The reality is that most of us in the room have never had anybody ask us those questions because we're not living in such a way that the question is raised. No one's sending a delegation to us to go, tell me more about what's going on with you and why you do what you do because we look exactly like everyone else because we live and speak. We declare uh, who we are in grandiose ways just like everyone else. And it's only when we recognize and see that what a true witness of Jesus looks like here in, in John 1, what a true witness of Jesus looks like is someone who is constantly pointing away from themselves. When we adopt that same posture, then it will seem so foreign and so out of place that the emissaries will start coming and they'll start knocking on the door to say, Tell me more about who you are and why you're doing what you're doing and what you say about yourself. That's where we want to be. That's what a witness of Christ looks like. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would move in us to have faithful, biblical, humble answers to the questions, who are you and what do you say about yourself and why are you doing what you're doing? We thank you for the model, the example of John the Baptist And we pray, God, that you would stir in us a hunger and a desire to answer those questions in the very same way. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.